Hi, and welcome to the Breastfeeding Medicine Podcast. I'm your co-host, Dr. Ann Eglash. I'm a clinical professor in the Department of Family Medicine at the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health and a board-certified lactation consultant. And I'm your co-host, Dr. Karen Bodnar. I am a pediatric hospitalist at Anova Children's Hospital and an assistant professor of pediatrics at Virginia Commonwealth University. I'm also a board-certified lactation consultant. This podcast is produced by the Institute for the Advancement of Breastfeeding and Lactation Education and is co-sponsored by the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine. Hi, Karen. How are you? I'm great, Anne. How are you? Good, good. So nice to see you. Yeah, so let's uh, let's talk about some interesting stuff today. Yeah, so um, I pulled a couple of things. The first one is from um, this last uh, edition of breastfeeding medicine, which I just got, it was from December of 2020. And there was a case study titled delayed hemorrhage following laser phrenotomy leading to hypovolemic shock, um, by Dong Hyun Kim, Alexander Dickey and others. And in it, in the, um, abstract, they wrote ankyloglossia is a failure of the tongue to release from the oral floor with reported consequences that include breastfeeding difficulties and speech impediments. Phrenotomy is a commonly performed procedure for the treatment of ankyloglossia. LASER, which is an acronym for light amplification by stimulation emulsion of radiation, is one of several mediums used to perform phrenotomies. Although most phrenotomies are uncomplicated, there remains a small possibility of complication, such as infection, pain, ductal injury, and hemorrhage, even in expert hands. Because phrenotomies are most often performed in infants, postoperative hemorrhage is an important complication to look for, even small amounts of blood may prove fatal due to low blood volume reserve. The authors report a case of delayed hemorrhage seven days after an uncomplicated laser phrenotomy in a six-week-old infant displaying shock symptoms and required fluid resuscitation. And they go on just to, um, they talk a lot about this particular case um, and about the procedure and how it's done. Um, And they make the point that there's been an exponential increase in the diagnosis of ankyloglossia in recent decades um, with one reported increase of 834%. And so it's paramount to weigh the clinical benefits and the risks of phrenotomy. Um, and I was struck by this case because I, um, I know of two similar cases in my institution. There's actually a, a doctor writing up a case series right now. And I, when I was once at the AAP conference was talking to another PICU doctor about a case where they had had a, a baby with significant hemorrhage after this procedure in their PICU. And so I feel like um, there are probably, there's probably underreporting of the complications and because it is being done so much more frequently. I think it's something that people really need to be aware of because they often um, recommend this as though there were no risks. Yes. And so in this case, with a, it's interesting to me that this hemorrhage started um, so long after a laser treatment, because I think of laser as really coagulating quite, a, quite well. And so I'm curious about what like why they thought that happened and was the baby low on vitamin K or did the baby have any kind of, you know, 
blood dyscrasia or some blood clotting disorder, I should say. I don't, I don't think that they um, did in this case. In one of the cases at our institute, in, at our institution, the um, infant did have an underlying, um, it turned out mitochondrial disease that um, the baby had some health problems. But I mean, that also goes to, you know, this is being done in a patient population that can have undiscovered congenital um, or genetic anomalies. And I, like I, I often, when I'm teaching the medical students say, never trust a baby, you don't know that their plumbing is connected correctly. You know, when they're acting funny, we have to consider all sorts of possibilities. Um, and, and also, you know, one of ours that was not the one I just mentioned that was a normal baby had bleeding six days after a wow. scissor procedure. Wow. Um, and so I think that it's, it is, it's a scary thought because the blood volume of an infant is similar to a can of soda. And they just don't have a lot to. That's a really good way to put it for people to understand. I also think that um, people, yeah, people do. I think people do really consider phrenotomy to be a benign procedure. And in addition, you know, I think there's scarring down that happens. We don't know about chronic pain. Um, I mean, certainly we see babies who are so much better after phrenotomy. Um, I had a I had a patient just last week who came up from Illinois, and. Uh, they saw me in the breastfeeding medicine clinic for a number of breastfeeding issues. It was a home birth, and I don't know, I don't know anyone, you know, in in that area that does in that particular region of Illinois that does home births. I don't know anyone in Illinois who does home births, but I know our midwives in our area who do home births, and um, our patients here who have home births um, typically are well taken care of, and they typically get their vitamin K. Well, I did a phrenotomy on this patient, not. And I know they mentioned the home birth. I didn't even think about the vitamin K because it's generally not an issue for our home birth is where I am. But then after I clipped it, I, it wasn't even a very, it was just an anterior clipping. It was a very thin, you know, relatively avascular, you know, little um, frenulum. And I didn't really go into the posterior compartment. Maybe Nick did a tiny bit, but nothing that I would have expected to bleed more than, you know, 30 seconds or something. But this went bled for, you know, oozed for about five minutes. And uh, I thought that was unusual. And I said, did you give your baby vitamin K? And um, they said, no, no, we decided not to. And, I'm, and I really, really got upset. And they went home and gave the baby the vitamin K. But this baby was already uh, a month old, six weeks, right? So then they're getting to that point of like, oh my God. So then I really you know, took a very good look at this baby, didn't see any evidence of petechia or purpura or anything like that. But I just said to them, you know, you get into a car accident, your baby can die bleeding, you know, I mean, what, you know, and so, um, and their concern about the vitamin K was that it has a lot of ingredients that look scary, all the, you know, additives for the oral vitamin K. So they, of course, refuse the shot vitamin K. So you always have to make sure that you're asking about vitamin K as well, which I just was so guilty. I just, again, it's out of my, it's, it's just unheard of for our patients around in this area to not get it. So, yeah. Well, and, and there isn't, I mean, maybe you have a different opinion, but I, my understanding is that oral vitamin K is suboptimal. Like yeah. I would much prefer for them to have the shot. 
Um, My understanding is that they have to have two doses if they have two doses. Uh, and I haven't looked at the literature for a long time, so I really shouldn't. This is not at all, you know. Um, <laughs> this isn't something that we have to worry about every day, thankfully, right, because exactly. right. yeah. we don't live in a third world country. Oh, wait, people are making choices <laughs> like they just don't appreciate what medicine can do for us. Right, exactly. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to not rant. It's your turn. What case do you yeah. want to talk about? So this is like another one of these, like, gosh, we should be aware of this. Um, this was actually a case report um, called, it was entitled Unilateral Breast Inflation Caused by Breastfeeding After Polyacrylamide Hydrogel Injection. And so apparently this PAAG, this um, polyacrylamide hydrogel is this like globish stuff that you can inject in the breast. <laughs> You're shaking your head, Karen. <laughs> I mean, I heard about this and I was just very distressed to hear that. Yes, yes. well, I talked to uh, our friend, Dr. Mitchell about it and she was just like, yep, you know, this is happening in lots of other places. But in this article, they state that um, this PAAG is widely used in Russia and in China as an injection material for cosmetic surgery at, in lieu of having any kind of an implant, right? Because it's cheaper, it's easier. Um, and so this was a case report of a woman who um, was 36 and four years prior to that had injections, um, this material in her breasts. And then, um, so four years later after the injection, she gets pregnant. And then about a month, around a month after she gave birth or somewhere within that first month, her breasts um, became like, one breast became so super large and she couldn't get any milk out of it that it just sort of like became like this really filled up taut balloon that they couldn't do anything with. And so um, she was referred um, to the surgeon's office. Um, they weren't sure if she, initially she was given antibiotics thinking that she just had a breast infection in, in that breast. Um, and, but her white count was normal. Um, her set, her C-reactive protein um, was was normal, maybe slightly elevated. So um, they did a CT of it, and it showed that the breast had this marked amount of fluid retention in the left breast, and uh, the it kind of like expanded between the chest wall and the breast tissue. So there was this big like expand expanding mass of material um, that was compressing the breast tissue. Um, and so they felt that um, they really couldn't do much about it other than they tried to suppress lactation. And what they needed to do is just open up the breast and remove this gob of stuff. Um, and they, they just got all this like yellowish, white, odorless material that was just like mud. Um, and they said that you, because it like adheres to the chest wall and to the mammary tissue, it just kind of congeals and you can't really remove all of it. Um, and so needless to say, um, she had to wean. Um, but they're saying that, you know, this is really unsafe uh, for women in general for their health. Um, there have been some other complications used for, uh, from, this, from this material, um, such as um, granuloma formation and breast deformities. Um, and, the, and it can delay the detection of breast cancer. So. Yeah, this is something that we really want to be aware of that if someone does um, present with um, unusual breast swelling and they're lactating in that, you know, the first few weeks and they are um, from, a, you know, another location, uh, someplace that you may not know about their cultural 
um, you know, culturally, they may be new to this country or something. I've never heard of people really using it in this country, but on the other hand, you know, we had that case of the, that uh, doctor, that non-doctor who's injecting stuff into people's butts for- um, Somehow I missed that. I'm gonna let it go. <laughs> they were injecting it into the gluteus. Um, and so there were all these women who got infections in their, in their glutei, in their, you know, gluteus, gluteus. Yes. And so injections, I think, do probably happen here. Um, but just to be, for us to be aware of it, because it is happening in various countries. So I just, I'm so blown away, like how people can get away with doing that to other humans, why people would think that was a good idea, why cosmetic things are so much more important than health. Like, I just can't. Well, I think that um, they're a lot cheaper and um, the people who are doing it are, you know, it, it's difficult for the people who are consuming this care to know how to assess the quality. You know, here's someone who has this procedure offer, just like if someone's going to go get cosmetic surgery um, for whatever it is, you know, how do you know they're going to do a good job? Um, how do you assess it? You know, I mean, health literacy, I mean, I, I don't, I don't even know how to tell them how to figure it out, but talk to the primary care physician who's certified, I guess, but yeah. I guess I just, well, that is a perfect segue into our next uh, topic, which is choosing wisely. So, um, Beginning in 2012, uh, the um, American Board of Internal Medicine Foundation um, started putting out these lists called Choosing Wisely. And in January 2021, the second iteration of the Choosing Wisely list for pediatric hospital medicine became available on their website. Um, for those who are not familiar, um, this ABIM Foundation seeks to advance a national dialogue on avoiding unnecessary medical tests, treatments, and procedures. Its mission is to promote conversations between clinicians and patients by helping patients choose care that is supported by evidence, not duplicative of other tests or procedures already received, free from harm, and truly necessary. Um, so this group has um, national organizations representing medical specialists ask their members to identify tests or procedures commonly used in their field whose necessity should be questioned and discussed. Um, they had a call to action that resulted in specialty specific lists of quote, things providers and patients should question. The updated pediatric hospital medicine list is titled five things physicians and patients should question and two of the five new items relate to the care of newborns. So I wanted to touch on those. Um, the first states do not initiate phototherapy in term or late preterm well-appearing infants with neonatal hyperbilirubinemia if their bilirubin is below levels of which the AAP guidelines recommend treatment. The risk of poor neurologic outcomes, such as cerebral palsy due to carnicterus, is extremely low for term and late preterm newborns with modestly elevated bilirubin levels. Confirmed cases of carnicterus have average bilirubin levels near 40 milligrams per deciliter and are typically associated with hemolysis. While phototherapy for bilirubin values above published thres thresholds may be useful to prevent severe for bilirubinemia and exchange transfusions, 
Its use for bilirubin values below published thresholds is unnecessary and is associated with additional costs and unnecessary hospitalization. And I think that's really important because, um, you know, we definitely see variations in practice um, for uh, years, the um, online Billy tool that so many physicians use to determine the need for phototherapy has said at the bottom, the AAP says you can start treatment at levels two to three below those, um, the line on the table. Um, and sometimes that is um, done because families have limited um, transportation or other um, social factors. But I think some people have gotten the habit of doing it quite frequently and it does cause um, separation and, you know, babies often aren't able to be skin to skin. Although where I trained, they did have these cool uh, sunglasses the moms could wear while the baby was skin to skin on them and getting phototherapy on their back. So, um, so, you know, so of course I'm significantly older than you and just a little history on this. So um, back in the 1990s, so before the 1990s, we used to, in my residency, we used to, we had a lot of formula for babies, right? We didn't have that much breastfeeding, but if they were yellow, we would do bellies right away. And we did ABOs and, and everyone who, every mother who was O positive or O, I should say, we did the blood type on the baby and check for belly. So we were very, very vigilant. And then somewhere in the mid 1990s, there was this term coin called uh, phobia, which is the fear of unbound bilirubin. <laughs> and um, so we used to talk about like, oh, we're fearless. This is just ridiculous. We should just stop worrying about all this hyperbilirubinemia. And so a lot of hospitals during that time stopped routine checking. Um, and then and no one was worried about it. And we were saying the same thing, like this bilirubin thing, this is ridiculous. We're not, you know, we're not, we don't need to pay attention to this. But then as the breastfeeding, I, from, my, from my point of view, as the breastfeeding rates have increased, we started to see more hyperbilirubinemia and more concerns about pernicterus, more concerns about exchange transfusions, obviously not managing breastfeeding very well. Well, and the other piece that I remember, because Bhutani spoke at the ABM conference a number of years ago, and I think that's where I learned that around that time, because of the sort of introduction of more managed care and the reduction in hospital stays before discharge for moms, but the pediatricians were still following up the babies at two weeks, there were babies that started to fall through the cracks and not weren't seen in a timely way. Right, there were a number of reasons. So that kind of, that was at the time that we were seeing more breastfeeding rates, but then the care regarding those breastfeeding patients was not optimal, right? They were being seen at two weeks, they were leaving early, breastfeeding wasn't well established, et cetera. So then we started seeing more complications, more, many more hospitalizations for coming back to the NICU with Billy's in their 20, you know, at 20 on day three or day four. And so then um, I remember when our hospital decided, okay, now we're going to reverse course, we're gonna stop just using our clinical judgment where we're gonna test everyone at 24 hours. And so now I think the pendulum has swung again, where the Choosing Wisely campaign is like, would you stop worrying about this? Like, but I think, but there, that's a little bit more of a gentle swoop of the pendulum because they're not saying stop routine screening, but what they're doing is um, they're just saying stop the unnecessary treatment. Um, yeah. 
Yeah. And I think that that's a nice balance because it's nice to know, you know, we, the screening is important, but that doesn't mean that we always have to treat every baby. Um, so the other one that was relevant to my patients, um, my newborns is do not start IV antibiotic therapy on well-appearing newborn infants with isolated risk factors for sepsis, such as maternal chorioamnionitis, prolonged rupture of membranes, or untreated group B streptococcal colonization. Use clinical tools such as an evidence-based sepsis risk calculator to guide management. And they go on to say, unnecessary exposure of infants to antibiotics is associated with increased parental anxiety, anxiety, length of stay, increased cost, gut microbiome dysbiosis, necrotizing enterocolitis, and possibly allergic and autoimmune diseases. Antibiotic therapy often leads to transfers to higher levels of care and thus decreased maternal infant bonding. The use of evidence-based sepsis calculators has demonstrated reductions in antibiotic use of 50% or more without a concomitant increase in the incidence of early onset sepsis. I have to say that the use of the word bonding, where it says higher levels of care and thus decreased maternal infant bonding, should be changed to say decreased maternal infant establishment of breastfeeding. Um, which is of critical importance to the health of mother and child. Yeah, like, I, <laughs> I think the word bonding is used yeah. so commonly in reference to the separation of mom and baby, where really it's it's missing the point of this is. And I, I was hoping you could help me. Actually, I was thinking about the, talking to you about this, and I was like, you know, there's got to be another analogy of something else that happens in medical care, where you know, we're we're doing something that is interfering with the establishment of a normal process um, that we could use as as an example um, to people. Like, I don't know, the one that I thought of first was if you don't introduce um, sort of solids and increased um, uh, textures to babies and finger foods sort of in that nine month period, you know, by the time they get to a certain age, they have feeding difficulty because they miss the developmental stage where they're able to do that and curious um, and they become averse and gaggy, but I'm sure there are other examples that we could come up with. Yeah, let me think about it. Put you on the spot here. You can think about it. I'm yeah. gonna keep going. There was something else about this that I wanted to bring up. So um, I thought those were both really interesting and they highlight um, sort of how some of the things that we do just to be safe can actually cause harm. Um, and then they went on to talk about how this list was created and they said, a diverse committee with representatives from the Society of Hospital Medicine's Pediatric Special Interest Group, the American of Academy of Pediatrics Section on Hospital Medicine and the Academic Pediatric Association's Hospital Medicine Special Interest Group solicited a list of recommendations from specified criteria um, from colleagues in the various society listservs. An iterative process recommendations were formatted, merged, and presented with an evidence review of publications of the past 10 years. From over 100 initial recommendations and through two rounds of a modified Delphi process, the highest scoring recommendations were chosen to represent the Pediatric Hospital Medicine Choosing Wisely list. This was endorsed by the boards of the Society of Hospital Medicine and the Academic Pediatric Association and peer reviewed by various AAP 
specialty groups. So I was thinking about this and that this, you know, is available in all sorts of specialties um, and that it's really looking at unnecessary tests, treatments, and procedures. And then I thought, you know, we should start the process to create a list for breastfeeding medicine. Mm -hmm. um, and the first thing that came to mind was pump and dump. Like yes. to me, that is an unnecessary procedure that women are put through um, very frequently. I also think that um, the treatment of a nipple shield falls into this category um, and possibly also feeding formula to decrease bilirubin. Yeah. Um, so yeah. those are the first ones that came to my mind. I'm going to start working on my plan. <laughs> yes, I think that that would be awesome. And I think that, um, yeah, we could have our own choosing wisely campaign just among, you know, in breastfeeding. And uh, the other thing I would say is, you know, rigorous evaluation before a um, phrenotomy. <laughs> like, let's use evidence for a phrenotomy. Yeah, and make sure that there aren't other um, treatments that are effective before we just go, oh, I see something and I have scissors right here. Exactly. That's exactly right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, that I think, I mean, I think that we could probably contact the Choosing Wisely campaign and just say, hey, how about just like, you know, not using, you know, just the risk of giving a cow's milk based formula to a baby who's going to be exclusively breastfeeding. Look at the the very compelling evidence that these babies can have a cosmic allergy later just by giving them a couple of bottles of cosmic based formula in the first couple of days. So there's a lot of things that um, I would be happy just to start with pump and dump. I think that is like yeah. such a common and it crosses so many specialties. So it's a great place for us because people are aware of choosing wisely. And I feel like um, it would be an opportunity to sort of highlight that this is um, a mistake that a lot of physicians are making just because of ignorance. It's not taught. You know, you take a whole year of pharmacology and you learn how to do renal dosing, but you don't necessarily learn a ton about how to evaluate for medications when mom's breastfeeding. Yeah. And I think, I think you're right. I mean, I think uh, pump and dump is a really good one to choose. And I think the reason why is because the Choosing Wisely campaign is getting rid of all these, like, oh, we should do it because we want to be safer. We're covering our rear ends. And that's what the, that's what the pump and dump recommendation is too, right? It's like, let's just be careful. Let's, but then you're doing so much more harm with that recommendation. So I love it. I think that's great. Let's do it. Let's get on it. We have our um, Stop the Pump and Dump app that we've been trying to launch for the last year. We have it written up about, you know, the things that, um, we should be like not worrying about. Um, we're hoping to get that launched soon. Um, and so we could um, give, show them our, our app too and say, here you go, use it. <laughs> use it. Use it, yes, and don't dump it. Um, yeah, great. Um, okay, well, um, I think that we should probably wrap it up. I think that was a good one. It was fun yeah. hanging out. Really good talking to you. And I uh, can't wait to hear more about the uh, Choosing Wisely. So I'll, <laughs> I'll talk keep you in the loop. Thanks. Okay. Bye, Anne. For questions regarding this podcast, please contact us through our website at lacted.org. We have other educational projects, including the Clinical Question of the Week, our Little Green Book of Breastfeeding Management for Physicians, and our various educational courses and conferences for physicians and other breastfeeding supporters. 
If you want to see what we look like, check out our Best Feeding Medicine podcast Facebook page, where you can post any questions or comments about our podcasts. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back with you in about four weeks.